to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah man, I'm I'm doing well. It's nice to be back after a week off. Yeah, we've had uh, a, a few interruptions in recent weeks. One was you were snowed in, mm-hmm. which doesn't help. I mean, obviously, we record this remote, remotely, but if you've trudged through miles of snow, it's not the, the most helpful in getting you in the right mindset to talk about movies. And then no. uh, lo- last week, I was just ill. I was like, yeah, as much as we like to talk about how having a cold really accentuates the, the, the timbre of our voices, uh, having a sore throat doesn't really work for anyone in that situation. So it felt like it was worth taking the week off to recuperate. Mm, yeah, and, and back we are. Mm, to talk about some news and we're going to start off with news about um amazon who are making some very big plays uh, and bewildering plays in the world of television kind of the most significant was this week we found out that their current their forthcoming adaptation of the lord of the Rings series which they are adapting as a five season TV show, which they have committed to fully, is going to cost around a billion dollars, and uh, they have approached Peter Jackson to to help them kind of shepherd that along. Uh, as someone who is a who is a big fan of the Lord of the Rings films, how do you feel about this development, Matt? I mean, it's, it's a wholly unnecessary development. It also mm-hmm. makes me feel kind of bad for for Peter Jackson, who now I feel like forever be the Lord of the Rings guy. Um, and and for the wrong reasons, like you know, you want it to be the film that you're remembered for, not the only thing you're remembered for. Mm. Um, it seems to be like they Amazon have rushed into this and been like, well, we need a new Game of Thrones because um, yeah. when that finishes, why don't we just make the original Game of Thrones? Mm-hmm. And but like, let's possibly use all of the story that hasn't been in some way scraped like butter over too little butter over over like too much bread uh, yeah to, to kind of misquote the movie let's try you know we've already used up everything from the appendices in in kind of lord of the rings and some of that was pretty tenuous and then to do the same thing with the hobbit which let's not forget did not go down well mm. it just just seems a little a little much to be plowing that much money to and that much time to five seasons as a commitment is is crackers yeah, and it does seem to be indicative, as you said, uh, of Amazon wanting a really big hit because they've been in the new, they've been in the original TV game for a good couple of years at this point, sorry, for like four or five years, and they've had some shows that have been critically really well liked, like Transparent, I think, is on its is about to come back for its fifth season, I think, and then you have things like Man in the High Castle, which got a lot of good notices, Mozart's Mozart in the Jungle which won a Golden Globe for Best Actor, I think, for Gail Garcia Bernal uh, a couple of years ago. But none of them are the sort of shows that have really broken out in a major way outside of you know people who are into TV in a major way. And I don't think any of their shows have regularly broken like a million viewers per episode uh, ever. Like some, some maybe will start off reasonably well, but... Uh, 
they they taper off like really noticeably and you can see that in you know recent months they've cancelled a lot of their smaller shows they cancelled uh one mississippi the tignataro show they cancelled uh, mozart's in the mozart in the jungle just this week they cancelled i love dick which was the jill soloway jill soloway show that was her follow-up to transparent and they really do seem to be moving away from being a one of many outlets for small or tourist projects to trying like you say to to make the new game of thrones and i mean business wise that probably makes more sense for them i guess if they want to really try and make a big splash in the tv game but also it feels like the wrong move for them in terms of like the way tv is going because there are very few shows that are big breakout breakout hits anymore you know you've got most recently roseanne you know came back to huge ratings this is us has been a huge success in in recent years but there's not much else everything else is shows that have small niches and then kind of survive through that like uh you know to go back to a recent episode of ours crazy ex-girlfriend just got renewed for a fourth and final season and that show isn't really watched by anyone i mean it's, it's amazing but it doesn't have huge ratings and that's kind of emblematic of the kind of shows that exist now shows that have a small but dedicated audience that will support the show and discover it and you know proselytize about it and it's very hard to force people to watch a show in huge numbers um because there's just too many options and it seems like throwing all your weight behind something like lord of the rings which is kind of played out at this point in a in in many ways as much as i love those original three movies and and that whole world, like, it doesn't feel like doing it all again, but with different people is going to have, is going to produce the same magic. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and The Hobbit was a proof of that. Hmm. Um, yeah. Like, whilst they did make some coin, there's no one who, you know, there's not many people who love that trilogy and love those movies in any way. In, in anywhere near the same way that people love the Lord of the Rings movies and kind of mm. people went to see them out of like completing some kind of dreadful obligation. Um, and you know, I've never felt the urge to revisit them. I saw them at the cinema and then out of curiosity, I watched the, like the four hour version mm -hmm. of all three edited together. And other than that, I, I, I wouldn't even like put it on in the background because it's so, unnecessary and kind of contrary to the point of the hobbit now they're, they're, unless there's something that's like they're, they're taking a very bold approach to it like they're, they may be picking a couple of like characters or factions from all these kind of appendices that they they've got access to and mm. just going completely crazy with it then that's the only way I think it can work because if they're trying to actually be faithful in any way to the the material that's left over you know there's nothing left mm. the, the the cupboard is bare yeah something that I think has been was really nicely pointed out and it's weird that the, uh, this happened around about the same time there's been all this movement on the TV series Lindsay Ellis the yeah uh, video essayist and cultural commentator has just put out the first two parts of a three-part series she's doing about the hobbit um, and a lot of that is talking about just how much, why those movies don't work, how drained of energy and inspiration they feel, uh, and there's lots of, you know, showing clips of 
from the behind the scene footage of Peter Jackson just looking exhausted. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, which even, I think we even talked about it at the time when those videos started appearing online. It's kind of amazing that a major studio release put out those as extras on the DVDs of everyone just kind of complaining about how hard it, how hard it was to make those movies and how little uh, investment they all had in the, the final product and how confusing it all ended up being. Um, that's kind of beside the point, but I, I think it does illustrate how even the people who made making The Lord of the Rings their focus for much of their lives feel like they had they were tapped out by the time that The Hobbit rolled along. And maybe getting in a fresh creative team will produce something better. Like, I'm sure there's lots of people out there who would be able to do something really good with it but then it makes you wonder well why would you want to bring in peter jackson to get his kind of imprimatur on it you know feels like you would want to really make a fresh break from it and say okay you know those movies are classics we're going to do our own thing not go like oh yeah the lord of the rings guy he's going to be here to i don't know look at scripts or whatever yeah you kind of wonder whether he's there in some kind of advisory role but like Mm -hmm. you know it feels a little like just try something new, you know. What yeah. I mean? Just like if if you're gonna spend time in that world, and you know, Middle Earth's a you know a fun place to to explore. But it's and that's it. Peter Jackson's already had his fun exploring it. Mm. We can't keep going back to the well um, and expecting it to you know kind of expecting the same result because it's not going to happen. Mm. And Peter Jackson, whilst the the circumstances surrounding the making of The Hobbit, you know, he wasn't supposed to be doing it um, until the last minute, or by which point it was too late to to stop, and he kind of had to go through with it anyway. Mm. The result we got was what you'd expect. We we got a film produced by someone who was doing it because they had to, and you know, it's so like you say, devoid of any kind of interest or inspiration, which the original trilogy is full of. So it it needs to be a a kind of almost completely new take on the milieu and the the kind of setting rather than trying to eke some kind of like grand five-season story and arcs and characters out of, you know what was already seen as not being worthy enough of being included in any adaptable media to this point. Mm. Although this does open up the opportunity, the possibility of us having live-action Tom Bombadil, because you've got five seasons to fill, some of it is going to focus on, on Tom Bombadil cavorting around. Yeah, I mean, and he, like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a Tolkien scholar, but he is uh, a kind of like an eternal being, is he? He kind of like he's mm. he's he's lived for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, so do you think that's what yeah. the whole first season is? It's just, just bomb- a- he's just walking around whistling, singing like Ring a Ding Dillo. Yeah, exactly. And uh, punching that tree. And like the, I forget that um, in well, I, I kind of reread the Lord of the Rings a couple of years ago. They stay with him for months. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's there's stuff in there, like you know, that's a lot of stuff to mine. They're just they're doing nothing. They're just kind of hanging out. They're just kind of house guests who out who outstay their welcome. Hobbits. Yeah, it's uh, very pastoral and leisurely that part of the book compared to. Um, I mean, that that's one of the amazing things about the film series is it has such propulsion 
Whereas mm. I think a lot of the book is like, yeah, we've got a really long way to go, so it's not going to be a quick journey. Yeah, I think in in the book, I think I kind of read it and then looked it up. Um, there's like eight years between Bilbo's <laughs> birthday and Gandalf coming back to the Shire saying, oh, that ring's dangerous. And then there's like another mm. nine months where Frodo leaves the Shire and moves in with Fatty Bulger in a house. And they, like, they're all living in this cottage for like another couple of months. And you're like, oh man, you don't really get the sense that the ring's dangerous. There's no sense of urgency here. But in the in the movie, they seem to uh, crank it up, which is, you know, why those movies are so good. They adapt the uh, what's seemingly unadaptable. Mm, so if Amazon are listening, and I'm sure they are, everyone's got Alexas now, so it's gonna they're gonna hear it somehow. Uh, just make an episode about kind of a, a sitcom about Frodo and Fatty Bulger kind of like living together and just being kind of like, wonder what Gandalf's up to. They're the original odd couple. <laughs> yeah, one of them's uh, on a, a a journey, you know, uh, divinely kind of foretold or whatever, and they're going to go and change the world. The other one's just kind of there, being like, "All right, how's it going?" It's actually <laughs> it's actually just the um, Marvel shorts of uh, Thor and his housemate. Pretty yeah, much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd watch that. Yeah. Uh, in other Amazon news, and this one was kind of stranger but i think more just because it's from a western perspective that this isn't a book that we would expect to have a billion dollar price tag attached to it there are reports that amazon are apparently close to signing a different billion dollar deal for the rights to the three bodies problem which is a sci-fi trilogy by lou sixin i think is how you pronounce his name i apologize if uh, i pronounced that wrong but that's a, a, a sci-fi series, the first of which won the Hugo Award about three years ago. These very kind of hard sci-fi novels that are massive successes in China but and kind of fairly successful outside of China. And that, I think, is interesting, A, because, again, it shows that Amazon are really intent on just throwing their money around and trying to create some sort of global hit uh, and move away from, like, small comedy dramas that only get watched by like 700,000 people to something that can appeal to a huge audience but also seeming to explicitly be making a move to really break into the Chinese market with that show because I'm sure they could get some interest outside of China because the the books have been fairly successful but you know considering how popular they are on the Chinese mainland that seems to be where that deal is aimed if it ends up happening yeah, whilst the idea of playing a billion dollars for book rights seems absurd, that news makes way more sense than the Lord of the Rings news. Mm, like, yeah. way more sense. In terms of striking when the iron is hot and going for something that hasn't been adapted before and for a market that is pretty much primed for an adaptation of it. Hmm. Yeah, and whilst I am not hugely familiar, I think you said you you haven't read it, but you you know of the book. Like, yes. there's, um, I mean, that's still a lot of money. I mean, yeah. you know, a, a film, you know, something like, I don't know, like a lot more films make a billion dollars now than they used to, but it has to be a pretty big hit to make a billion. Um, so banking on, you know, with marketing and everything, all those production costs. You know, it's going to have to make multiple. Each film is going to have to make multiple billion dollars, and if you're going to try and do that in any market, it's 
you know, China probably might make sense. And if anyone's got the money to do it, then Amazon have. It almost mm. it's almost like they're trying to spend a surplus, like yeah. <laughs> before the end of the year. Yeah, they got all that money from the tax cuts that uh, got passed last year. It's like, oh wow, we can just uh, burn it all on TV series of books that may or may not be that are you know that are popular, but may not make any sense as TV series. But let's give it a go. You know, you only live once. Hmm. I wonder if it gets to the point where a show costs a billion dollars, whether the debate about what's the most expensive pilot ever made will mm. ever like forever cease because it, you know their pilot will be a two hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, uh, especially if you know these are shows that are all going to be produced ahead of time and then just all released in one go. Mm. Like you, you basically have to say, well, I guess the first season is the pilot. Uh, and it costs many hundreds of million dollars to make it. So, yeah, it will definitely put, put that argument to rest. Uh, I think, was it Discovery, I think, is probably the leader of the, in the clubhouse at the moment? That's one that's mm. very expensive. Yeah, they, they may not hold that record for very long. It was Lost. Was it Lost for a long time? Yeah, Lost had was a hugely expensive pilot. Um, yeah, it held that title for quite a while. Then, I don't know, probably like Westworld or something may have also cost a lot because that was a big prestige show. And it was also in development for like three years um, mm. from when they started shooting it to when it aired so that one probably cost a fair bit yeah yeah and in news that is going to kind of carry us into our main topic for this week steven spielberg who is obviously doing the rounds for ready player one confirmed that his next movie or one of his next movies because he's got kind of two in the hopper at the moment is going to be the fifth indiana jones movie and uh, it's going to be harrison ford's last time uh in the hat and carrying the whip and uh, seemed he seemed to be saying that he would be happy to see uh, the series continue, but without Harrison Ford and with a female hero, which uh, is a is a, a lovely, cool sentiment, but also is wrapped up in the the idea of like I don't really think we need any more Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much stock they were putting in Shia LaBeouf pulling off. Mm. Uh, you know, whether they thought that the the Indy would pass the torch to his son in Crystal Skull, but um, that idea seems to have fallen flat, mainly because Shia LaBeouf seems to have fallen out of favour with the mainstream crowd because he mm. uh, got bored of making you know big Hollywood movies, um, um, and is is kind of retreating back into. Uh, indie or kind of uh, more interesting fare um, mm-hmm. but also the fact that the film was pretty terrible and um, yeah, it was you know it made some some sweet dollar but I'm not sure that you know the critical response wasn't glowing I think the weird thing about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull other than the fact that it's got like the least gainly title of all of those movies mm is that when you look back on it, like, it was a huge hit. It made, like, over $350 million in the US at the time. Like, it was a bigger hit than Iron Man, which also came out the same summer. Uh, And if The Dark Knight hadn't come out, it would have probably been the biggest, one of the bigger films of that year. And the reviews were, like, fairly, like, it's in the 70s, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes. It was only, like... A little after it came out, the, the 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 consensus really kind of turned on it. I think everyone was just so excited to see the character back or whatever, or like Spielberg making this big unabashed blockbuster again, considering he spent most of the last couple of years making either like dark sci-fi movies or stuff like Munich or even like the more popular stuff would have been stuff like Cash Me If You Can, which was really melancholy. 
and everyone seemed to be a little kind of overawed by that and then after a little while everyone the consensus definitely formed that it was not a good movie and you kind of wonder what's to gain from doing it all again this time maybe he feels like he has a chance at redeeming himself but like as reading player one kind of suggests he maybe isn't the sort of person who can make kind of big populist blockbusters anymore like maybe he's just evolved past that mm, i think he's probably still got it in him it's just i i, I kind of question the, the 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 choice of material which is mm. an odd thing to say to someone who can literally do anything he wants yeah um but it, I, you know i i don't see the purpose in doing another Indiana Jones movie, given that there were ideas for an Indiana Jones movie knocking around for years and years and years, and one of them was always Aliens. I think that yeah. was, it was Aliens was supposed to be the antagonists in, or the, you know, the plot point in in the third film maybe, um, and then they decided against it and kind of shelved the idea. And the whole Roswell thing was was always. Um, kind of part of early drafts of of Indiana Jones stories and things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, years and years later, they kind of cobbled together the same idea. And, and, and the problem with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, um, to give it its full name, is, you know, there's just not enough story there. There's There's barely enough story for Temple of Doom and Last Crusade to exist. Um, mm. But you know, they kind of can get by by at least being fun, whereas yeah. the Crystal Skull is is neither. No, or, or there, there's kind of flashes of it, like I think a lot of the stuff when it's uh, Indy at the university and he's like, him and Shire's character, Mutt, Mutt Williams, are kind of like driving around on motorcycles, you know, it's a very cool chase, but as soon as you get to the jungle and everything becomes weightless CGI, mm-hmm. then it's kind of really hard to care about anything that's happening. Yeah, yeah, the the monkey swinging, um, mm. and yeah, was kind of yeah, pretty pretty. That was a low point um, yeah. of a of a series which includes some of like incredibly racist filmmaking in uh, in in uh, uh, Indiana Jones episode two. Mm. Yeah, and also you know it, it's it's kind of as this weird thing where not a lot happens, but it still feels like really overstuffed. Like okay, you have. Indy meeting the son he didn't know about, but also Marion's back, and also John Hurt is there, mm-hmm. and Ray Winston is playing a double or triple agent who's double or triple crossing everyone, and also the US government is involved and think that Indy's a commie maybe and he's fired from his job. It just feels like they had they they took bits from about five different scripts that have been worked on over the t- over the years and just kind of like well. You know, it's now or never, I guess. <laughs> Let's just kind of put these all in and see what lands. Yeah, um, and not much did. Mm. So it'll be. I'll be interested to see what happens with that one, mainly because, like, I feel like Harrison Ford is maybe trying a little harder these days than he was in the mid two thousands. Um, like his performance in the Force Awakens felt a lot more engaged than he has in a while, and he was great in Blade Runner 2049. He was, yes. Maybe if they're going into this knowing that it's the last go-around, maybe Indy dies in this one. Uh, That certainly seems to be um, what what he seems to like doing, is uh, kind of taking on uh, these iconic characters and letting uh, directors murder them. 
Um, I mean, he's only done that once, but you know, there's def- maybe you know we're going to get um, he's going to get Peter Weir out of retirement and make <laughs> Witness Two, and just have him be murdered in the opening scene. But there, there is kind of like a sense that maybe if they go in with that angle and if they're trying to make something that's crowd pleasing but also kind of melancholic and about you know changing times because this one would probably have to take place in the 60s or whatever if the last one took place in the 50s maybe there's something there but you know i guess it all depends on if they have a good enough reason to make it besides the fact that someone somewhere wants to make a fifth indiana jones movie Mm, i think if it's going to be the 60s the only the only um Indiana Jones I'd watch is a kind of like knockabout sex comedy where he mm. is like tripping balls on acid at Woodstock. Yeah, um, if it's just and... a remake of uh, like Roger Corman's The Trip, yeah, where his his mind just disintegrates and he's just like running through different insane scenarios. Mm. Yeah, I'm totally into that. Whilst you know the band play in the background. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So again, Stephen, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are. <laughs> yeah. DreamWorks also everywhere. Um, then you know, get get on us. You know, we've we've got some bad ideas, but so have you. So. Our bad <laughs> our bad ideas are cheaper. That's true. <laughs> so we're, we're throwing them out there. Uh, Indiana Jones Five. It's you know, it's uh, what's the line from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? It's my happening baby, and it's freaking me out. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Indiana Jones and the happening that's freaking him out. Uh, coming to theaters in 2019. Well, uh, we might. We don't want to give ourselves two years or one year. <laughs> Let's, yeah, let's say 2022. We can at least rewrite it a couple of times. All right. So so that's what's next on our slate. But let's uh, look from future Steven Spielberg projects to current Steven Spielberg projects and his latest Ready Player One, which came out this past weekend or two weeks ago at this point, an adaptation of the Ernest Cline novel, which came out in 2011 uh, and is basically Oops All 80s. It is uh, a movie in which... Characters go into this virtual world called the Oasis in which they are able to live out all of their fantasies as long as they conform to the things that Ernst Klein grew up liking. Yeah. And uh, is kind of this Willy Wonka type story in which they have to kind of go through all these worlds, solve clues to collect keys, and then the winner gets to own the Oasis itself. But the main character, Wade Watts, played by Ty Sheridan, uh, Terrence Malick, um, uh, uh, former star uh, Ty Sheridan uh, plays kind of the lead. He's going through all of these different challenges, accompanied by uh, Olivia Cook, who people probably actually probably don't know her from Thoroughbreds because no one watched that, but she's great in that. Uh, and against Ben Mendelsohn, obviously playing uh, the villain who's in charge of this massive corporation that are trying to win the contest to in order to take over the Oasis. Now, uh, I haven't read the book that this is based on uh, i've seen eps- excerpts and they always look terrible <laughs> they always just read like very very bad fanfic in which a lot of things from different properties fight each other you have read some of it matt um so did you go into this movie with pretty low expectations my my expectations were kind of so low mm. you know you have to excavate them. They were like, <laughs> they were like deep, deep subterranean expectations. I had heard of the book and I heard that like people liked it, 
um, who kind of were into sci-fi and stuff to the to the degree that I actually bought it for my nephew, who I'd always been like, I've like been the cool uncle who buys him like kind of comics and and you know cool movies and things. And I didn't know I hadn't read the book at that point, but I heard that people were like liking it, so I, I bought it for him for Christmas, and he loved it. Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, cool, nice one. And then I, because I didn't realize that it wasn't particularly well liked um, at that point. Um, so then I got it on Kindle for like 50p in a sale. And at that point, I did realize that it had a bad rep. Um, right. But then I started reading it um, about three or four weeks ago. And according to my Kindle, um, I got 12% into the book <laughs> before mm-hmm. I had to stop reading because it made me feel physically ill um <laughs> because i and i was complaining about it on twitter about how much i wasn't liking it um and someone said um they summed the book up perfectly with the phrase um um hey remember that thing you liked i mentioned it which is mm. exactly exactly the approach that ernest klein takes to the book but the 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 thing that hampers him is he's not a very good writer it's mm. some of it is Dan Brown level of um, kind of like sub A level prose. Um, there's a like on the in the first few pages. There's a there's a line which you know it, it's it's up there with you know the, the famous man looked at the red cup. It's <laughs> it's um, it's just something like he moves slowly like a sloth. That is right. actually a line from the book. That is wow. that is something that a grown man wrote. But and also the first the first chapter talks about the funeral of the guy who built the oasis, and then there's footnotes, and at the end it explains all the references to all the films that it's that it kind of mentions in detail. And that's the thing is that like you can kind of mention things in a reference, but then if you have to explain it, mm. you're not telling a story; you are showing off your knowledge about a certain thing. And yeah. so yes, um, the book um, kind of really was, and I. You know, I am someone who uh, is loath to give up on things. I have only given up on a few books ever in my life. Um, I've never walked out of a movie. I will always try and watch a film to the end. I kind of hate not finishing things. But yeah. Ready Player One was that was that was a bridge too far, man. Yeah, I think in terms of assessing the book's reputation, I feel like it was a it was fairly well liked when it came out. Obviously, like not everyone liked it because it's not very well written. But like, I think for a lot of people, it was like, oh, this is kind of like fun, disposable stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in the ensuing like seven years, geek culture in general has undergone something of a shift, um, particularly in the wake of like Gamergate and things like that. And the, the fact that... Um, geekdom is uh has kind of changed in that it's no longer like oh this is kind of like a thing all the loners and outsiders or whatever can find comfort in you know finding their tribe online or whatever and and you know kind of have their through their shared love of certain things to more of the kind of case of um of uh gatekeeping and like not accepting people unless they are the most knowledge about stuff and that's always been a part of geek culture i don't want to say that it's never been the case but the 
pushback against people trying to be more inclusive in terms of, you know, depictions of different uh, sexualities and genders and races in in all the, 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 the traditionally white male dominated areas of, of pop culture has kind of had its most virulent uh, strain in in gaming and sci-fi culture. You know, you see that with the response to The Last Jedi most recently where a, a, a minority but a dickish minority of people just kind of like harassing Ryan Johnson literally every day since that movie came out, which is uh, kind of horrifying. Or in with the Hugo Awards, you know, the, the rabid puppies, you know, where they try they, this group of malcontents try and jam these uh, nominations every year by voting for, you know, kind of right wing writers and things like that, rather than, you know, reflecting the actual best work of the year and, and things like that. You know, they say they're pushing back against social justice warriors and all this sort of nonsense. You know, that, that that stuff has really kind of happened a lot in the years since Ready Player One was published. So the book, you know, may not have been good at the time, but I think had an air of innocence around it that now can't really be replicated ever again and that's one of the things that feels really weird about the movie is that as i was watching it like i just found myself like being really uneasy with this kind of like real celebration of pop culture and art that is so geared towards like middle-aged white guys for the most part like there's some uh nods to more recent works of fiction and things like that but it's like for the most part you're watching it you're thinking this is like such a celebration of like stuff that one particular guy of a certain demographic liked that um for me it ended up feeling really alienating Mm. it's like they made a film specifically for the comic book guy from the simpsons (laughs) not like the guy in the you know the wayland yutani t-shirt down the pub um it's they've made a they've they've made uh a a work of of art in the book and the film that uh appeases the worst impulses of fan culture Mm. and i don't even know if that is necessarily a bad reflection on ernest klein who i don't know a huge amount about as a person he just he seems like a guy who's just like very enthusiastic about the things that he likes and he just happens to unfortunately like tapped into a very toxic part of of you know, the online culture. But yeah, there's definitely like a lot of the movie in like just the way it is just constantly wanking off the 80s as like an idea and as an aesthetic in a culture that already gave us Stranger Things, you know, which is already prone to kind of like indulging in nostalgia to uh, a, 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 a dilatorious... Um, uh, 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 effect, you know, doesn't really feel make make the movie feel like it's particularly vital or necessary at this point. Mm, I kind of had this discussion with someone the other day that you know the show Stranger Things leans incredibly hard on nostalgia, mm. um, and uh, in places it feels um, somewhat forced and uh, you know 
can be like a bit tiresome, but the thing that Stranger Things has is that you you kind of like and care about the characters at that point. So the nostalgia stuff, you can kind of look past it and um, and kind of get invested in the story and what's going on with the characters. Now, in Ready Player One, um, I was in the movie, I was like, oh, is that Blanca in the background? Um, mm. Because I had zero, I gave zero fucks about the lead character. I couldn't tell you his name. I couldn't tell you anything about him. Like I just, he was just on some vague quest that was very colourful and noisy. But mm. in the background, there was things that I was spotting because I was bored of the main, the main um, thing. So if it just becomes a Where's Wally um, of pop cultural, I'm going to say icons, but the fucking baddie from Mortal Kombat is, <laughs> you know, that's that's like you know that's the level we're on. Um, mm. And I'm like, oh, God. You know, this is just... And that, that's the word I'd use, use to describe it. It's just so tiresome. Mm. It's just like... You may as well just start... You know, I get it. Like, yeah, I know who Chun-Li is. Everyone does. Yeah. Like... And this is the thing. If, if it was just a thing... like It's like, um, you know, like Wreck-It Ralph. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, walking through the, uh, the kind of... The, the junctions in the video games and stuff. Those kind of gags are throwaway... But yeah. no one stops and points at them and like practically like looks straight down the lens and goes, "Huh, hey, hey, remember that? How do mm. you feel about that?" Because you know, there's more going on there where there's there's literally nothing happening in Ready Player One. Yeah, it's very much in the you know Family Guy area of reference where the joke is the thing itself. Not there's no kind of like comment on it. It's more just kind of like, "Hey, here's a thing that you know, enjoy," mm. you know. Uh, and that's kind of the extent that it goes to and i think for me like there were lots of things apart from the you know the main character is you know a cypher but he's like the most cyphery main character i've seen in a while like i don't think there's been a blander lead character in a role in a movie since the whoever charlie hunnam played in pacific rim mm. who was such a blank canvas like at the start of that movie oh his brother died and then then there's nothing else that's kind of meant to carry you through it and he's never anything more than just oh charlie hunnam is playing this character it doesn't really feel like a person and all wade watts is is like a list of the thing of pop culture you know because his whole thing is that he is obsessed with this guy halliday who is the guy who created the Oasis and he's on this treasure hunt to try and find the Easter egg that he hid at the heart of the game. And so all he is doing most of the time is just rattling off things from pop culture. And there's not really anything for him outside of that in terms of, you know, character growth or anything like that. The character that Olivia Cook plays Artemis uh, was more interesting to me because, you know, when they talk about her, um, motivations for why she is searching for the easter egg is kind of tied into this more this broader idea of fighting against this dystopian world in which corporations are essentially the government and things like that um lena waith's character is more fun and more interesting and also like i i just couldn't get over the fact that you know they do the thing where her character h is um introduced at the start of the movie and he's and her avatar is like this big uh huge like guy demon thing like cyborg whatever and the whole way through you every time he talks is this like 
really heavily distorted vocoder thing. So it's like, oh, this isn't a person talking with their real voice. It's someone who's trying to hide it and is pretending to be male uh, in this world of the Oasis. They're clearly not going to be who we think they are at the end. And then Lena Waithe shows up. It's like, okay, obviously, yeah, that's why it sounded like Lena Waithe under a heavy vocoder thing. And I just found that such a weird choice to have this one character not sound like anyone else in the movie if everyone else had kind of like a weird distorted fuzz on it then like it would make more sense or if they had a male actor play that part until you see her at the end and it would have been a genuine twist but that was such a weird thing but but for me another another aspect of the movie that just felt so weird to me was that the world is established as being dystopian like pretty much the start they talk about how everyone plays the Oasis all the time because it allows them to escape from how terrible the world is. And there's all this kind of stuff about um, like ecological collapse and how there have been like wars and people have died and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and like Wade, what's even at one point says, you know, people have stopped trying to solve problems. They're just trying to outlive them or whatever. And so there's all this stuff where they're filling in images of a world that is kind of like fallen into decay but you don't really see it that much and there's not really that sense of it as a, a kind of a real dystopia dystopia, uh, except for the one point which I thought was really funny when Ben Mendelsohn is talking about what he wants to do with the Oasis when he wins it, if he wins it, which is basically make it all advertisements everywhere and he kind of has this one throw away line where he says, you know, we've, we've worked out that we can fill 80% of a user's vision with adverts before inducing a seizure. And it's just this one throwaway line, which I made me think, God, I wish Paul Verhoeven directed this movie because that kind of rank depiction of just corporatism run amok is so tantalizing. And then the rest of the movie is like this weird tonal shift between, oh, this world is like terrible and corporations have ruined everything for everyone. And we were in the oasis and we're, and we're in the shining now hey you know and it's kind of like it's so it's so weird that that's the way that the the movie kind of veers between the two and it kind of left me really it just left me really unsatisfied because like as much fun as some of the oasis stuff was there was all this sense of like oh man there's like a, a way more interesting movie to be made from this material if only they'd hired someone who like hated it in the way that paul verhoven hated the novel starship troopers Mm, yeah, and the the one concession they do give to it being um, a kind of dystopian future is the fact they shot most of it in Birmingham. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, wow. Because the thing is, like, so many British actors cropped up in it. I was mm. like, they wouldn't fly Chris Finch from the office all the way to like America <laughs> for this, and he turned yeah. up in Last Jedi as well. And I was like, mm. yeah, this guy's, and he's in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I was like, this guy's got a great CV. Um, yeah. uh, Ralph Innocent is his name before I you mm. know, always refer to him as Chris Finch so I was yeah. like oh I, I kind of wonder whether they, they probably shot this in Britain I looked it up and yeah Birmingham because like the, the, wow. the car chases at the end look like suspiciously British streets mm. um, and yeah so like future dystopian Cleveland Ohio Birmingham yeah in much the way that uh, mid 2000s Sheffield subbed in for 80s Birmingham every time they needed to film um, uh, This Is England <laughs> Mm. it's kind of like okay we're we're covered for pretty much any time in human history at somewhere in any of these post-industrial cities in the uk yeah but um no i kind of 
uh, agree with you on on kind of all these points that um, if Paul Verhoeven, someone who understood more satire and mm. perhaps has zero reverence for source material, um, yeah. would have would have done it, then you know you probably could have got something that was. Uh, entertaining and like I'll be honest, some parts of the of of Ready Player One are super entertaining. There was like some of the action sequences, like the, the first car race, yeah. was like really well done. Um, I actually thought that the Shining sequence was a real trip um, yes. because I mainly was trying to figure out how they did it. Yeah, when when they first walked through the door into the Overlook, and you know they were walking down the stairs and walking towards the typewriter, I was like. Some of this looks like it's just <laughs> clips from The Shining that they've like really seamlessly integrated people into, but also it looks like they've completely rebuilt the set from The Shining. Mm. Uh, and it was that was for me as someone who loves The Shining, uh, I found that to be really cool. And apparently that bit is an addition in the book. I think they have to recreate War Games. Um, it's uh, well, I'm not sure that there's a big section in it about where they go into Blade Runner. Oh, okay. But, um, they didn't get the rights for Blade Runner because Blade Runner 2049 was out. Ah, but yeah, so The Shining was like a substitution, which made sense, obviously, because it's a Warner Brothers property that they already owned. But also, you know, because Steven Spielberg is, uh, has a, a long-standing, uh, you know, was a, was a long-term friend of Stanley Kubrick, and they had a very close professional and personal relationship, particularly towards the end of his life. So it kind of felt... Uh, like a, a you know kind of quite a touching thing for him to play around in the world that he'd created even if it then descends into giant 200 foot tall skeletons with axes <laughs> like chopping up the maze which was weird mm, yeah i was kind of wondering whether or not jack nicholson was going to make an appearance um, mm. when the axe came through the door because i was like you know this could be jack nicholson's last screen credit <laughs> um, <laughs> which is you know Something I'm sure that he, you know, he probably wouldn't have thought of back in the day, um, but mm. yeah, um, one of the kind of the big problems I had with Ready Player One was 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 that idea that, like you tapped into about Lena Thwaites' character, that you know, she was pretending to be a dude, and you know, it was really obvious from the start, but like they made such a big deal when the two characters are hanging out earlier, when he's talking about um, Artemis, and H says to him, you know, don't fall in love with this avatar because it could just be, like, a big fat dude who lives in his mum's basement. Mm -hmm. um, but then, like, you know, oh, it just so happens that Artemis turns out to be beautiful. Except she's got a birthmark, which <laughs> renders her unlovable. <laughs> in yeah. the world of this movie uh i think in the book he, she's also meant to be slightly fat so i mean that's probably a change you know making the book <laughs> making the film less fat shamey than the book is a good move but also it does leave you thinking i mean that birthmark doesn't look that bad and you know she kind of like frames it under her hair and she also still looks be like you say she's she's incredibly cute <laughs> yeah. even with a slightly red part on her face it was yeah, it, it really didn't feel like that much of a, a big deal. And like when Ty Sheridan is like, I want you to know I'm not disappointed. And she's kind of like, I don't think anyone would be. <laughs> she's, she's a really, really beautiful girl. Yeah, it's, it's so big of you to look past this tiny imperfection on someone. 
Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, I would have really got behind the movie if he would have, like, just shacked up with this guy who lived in his mum's basement, this big fat dude. And, like, mm. you know, it would have been more honest for the nerds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Just, let's just make it happen. But, like, it's... it's it kind of speaks to, um, and this, like, I think I kind of agree with you totally. Like, post Gamergate, anything like this is kind of problematic and troublesome. It, there suddenly becomes um, that kind of passionate fan base who demand ownership of the content, and mm. it kind of has the Last Jedi thing that you mentioned was was kind of really important. Because, like we said when we talked about the film, um, my initial reaction to The Last Jedi was one of kind of disappointment and confusion. And it was because I'd fallen into the, the fan ownership trap in that, you know, we look now, like kind of six months after The Last Jedi's come out, and the reason that a small minority of people didn't like it was essentially because it wasn't the film they wrote in their head. Mm. Uh, the, the the episode eight that they'd written, um, and um, their kind of like very very vocal reaction to that um, was what gets the headlines. People talk about it being a divisive film or a disappointing film or an underperforming film when none of those things are true. Um, yeah. And and it means that the people who have decided to have a problem with it can kind of dictate the discourse around the film, mm. which is really kind of disappointing and this is what is like so apparent in ready player one it's like this kind of create your own adventure with all the pieces of your favorite bits of pop culture and just it doesn't matter if it strips it of any meaning it's just your sandbox to play around in so you've you know you've got a moment in uh, ready player one where ben mendelson morphs into mecha godzilla and mm-hmm. to bring him down Serenity from Firefly drops out of the sun and a samurai uh, jumps out and then morphs into Gundam yeah. and fights him. Whilst the DeLorean from Past the Future 2 <laughs> is driving around on the floor. And it like uh, that point in the film, I, I audibly groaned out loud because <laughs> I was like, like, come on, like seriously, <laughs> like, you know... It's, you can't just put a couple of, like, lots of random favourite things from movies and TV shows you liked in a hat and just jumble them up and just chuck them out on screen. All of mm-hmm. those things. Are, the Iron Giant is, like, he fucks shit up in that. Like, the most kind of pacifist, peaceful character, like, with, you know, like a humane soul in any movie, like like released in the like last 30 years is suddenly becomes a kind of like stomping old killing like kind of giant terminator monster mm. and you know when he falls down a hole i'm really pleased <laughs> yeah <laughs> because i just wanted him out of the picture it's like and, and this is what the film is the film is is this whole thing of like unsatisfied with you know modern movies just create your own we'll have a very very kind of straightforward quest um story with three simple phases you could work through and you just color in the pieces yourself yeah and and also when the iron giant fall the thing that i groaned at was when the iron giant falls down into a pit of lava and then like his hand goes oh. under and he does the thumbs up from terminator, terminator 2, 2. Which is the, like the the worst part of Terminator Two? 
<laughs> just yeah. like, fucking hell, you've, you've, you've paid homage to the worst part <laughs> of a film that everyone likes for reasons I can't fathom. Yeah, and at the same time, like, you know, it's very easy for you and I, people who are on, on Twitter a fair bit and online and are very aware of the discourse, capital T, capital D, and... <laughs> And what people are saying about movies and, you know, the, this roiling culture war that is going on out there. But when I was watching Ray Player One, like, the, the guy sat behind me was like a guy, a dad in his 40s with his kids. And every time there was a reference, he was like, yes, or I love it. Or, you know, something like pointing out the thing. And he was just having a blast. And I don't think he was kind of like an old writer Reddit type. I mean, mm. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's, it's wrong to assume as, you know, th- I mean, the, the, the big problem with Ready Player One and to my understanding, the follow-up book uh, Armada is that, you know, the, the central thesis of them or one of the underlining tenets is that if you like a thing and I like it, that means we're you're a good person and I can trust you, which is not is demonstrably not the case. Um, just because someone likes Star Wars doesn't mean they're not also like a rabid fascist. Um, the two can coincide, and like, but 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 you know that guy was just enjoying it. I don't think you know that he was kind of like involved in this kind of big roiling culture war. You know, for for people who are just there, who just want to kind of have a bit of fun nostalgia. Like, I think that's what the movie works on on that level for them. And it, it I think it's how problematic it is probably varies depending how online you are as a person. Mm. But at the same time, like that stuff is going on so i don't feel like i can dismiss like all these concerns like like the way that some people like dismiss the debate around like isle of dogs at the moment where people talk about being appropriative or not um like there's a there's a a, there's a kind of a segment of people who are just like yeah i don't really care about that you know it's just a fun movie about dogs and like i don't want to be like that for ready player one where i'm like well for a large part of the audience they're just going to be like uh, this is, you know, this is good fun time because, like, I feel like the debate surrounding it touches upon things that are much deeper, you know, the the connections between Gamergate and the alt-right and Trump and all this sort of stuff is kind of well-documented at this point. So even something like this, which I think is kind of an innocuous... is intended as kind of an innocuous bauble and, you know, just something for to delight kind of multiplex audiences still because of the things it's encouraging feels wrong to me in that way mm. i'd just like to say kind of it's off the point but innocuous bauble is a great name for an album <laughs> it's been a while since we've had a good album name in uh on the show but yeah innocuous bauble is a good one mm. and yeah it for some people it will be harmless and like i think the idea of intertextuality in media which is one of, if you understand a reference to another piece of media in an, in in another, then you in some way forge a bond with it because you get it on the level of the pe- the people who created it. Mm. Now, I got a big portion of the references in Ready Player One by no yeah. stretch all of them, but all it did was drive a wedge between me and and the media I was consuming because. Mm for every good action sequence or piece of business that happened in the movie that I invested in, I was suddenly yanked out of it by 
super obnoxious um, referencing of stuff that you know had very little relevance to the tone of the movie or the the, the you know the um, what was happening at that moment and you know it kind of just breaks the mood suddenly when mm. when you're invested in something and instead of it just being a background thing that you might not even notice or if you're too invested in what's going on you would, wouldn't notice until you saw it like two or three times you know the film comes to a screeching halt in an like, egregious fashion when again someone points out something and makes it incredibly obvious that it's going on and you should be on board with it and that's a, a hard thing to ignore when it's just so in your face all the time yeah and for me like it's made me uh if nothing else it's made me re-examine my own past relationship to kind of fandoms mm-hmm. um because uh, i think i've talked about this on the show before like when i was in my kind of late teens early 20s i was really active on a message board dedicated to the channel Four sitcom spaced and that is a show that has a lot of references to it like that's a big thing and obviously it connects to ready player one because simon Pegg is in both mm. but I feel like, and I've been trying to think about, you know, what are the differences between what Ready Player One does and what Space did? You know, why did I love Space so much and why does Ready Player One, you know, repulse me? That's probably too, that's too, probably too um, extreme language. But, you know, it, it did, why did it, like, leave me kind of feeling, like, hollow and empty? And I think the key difference is between, like, with Spaced, there were lots of references dotted around because Simon Pegg uh, is, you know, and, and Jessica Stevenson were very kind of pop culture savvy, so they were dotting it with references to the stuff that they liked. And Edgar Wright, who directed it, was obviously a huge you know, cinephile. He knew references to everything. But the references were never, like, were very rarely the point of the jokes. It was very much kind of... A, a thing that they would kind of embellish certain plot uh, aspects or just like these standard tropes of sitcoms like you know they move into the house for the first time and then they just happen to at the end of a scene look kind of like uh daphne and no sorry velma and shaggy from scooby-doo or whatever and it's kind of like a quick thing but if you don't get it it doesn't really harm the scene it doesn't take you out of it if you do get the reference it's just kind of like there whereas if you look at something like Ready Player One, the onslaught of references are just so apparent and obnoxious. And I imagine, you know, the difference, that one of the main differences in taking it from page to screen is that at least there are long lists of references in the movie, but at least in the visual medium, you don't have to constantly have people saying them. Like, they are just kind of dotted in the background. But it still feels like every time, like... Uh, like the first time that Artemis and um, and Wade kind of like talk to each other for the first time and they're just lifting, listing facts about Halliday and they're talking about, you know, his favourite shooter was Goldeneye. His favourite character, odd job. His, his favourite mode, slappers only. It's like, God, I don't care. <laughs> uh, also, uh, if odd job's your favourite character in Goldeneye, you are a cop because uh, <laughs> that was a sure way to cheat. But uh, yeah, it, like, whenever they just did that stuff, it just felt it felt so pandery, and it reminded me 
of um weirdly it reminded me of 500 days of summer which was another movie that kind of made me break out in hives because like it was so geared towards like oh edwin we've made a movie that references all the things that you like surely you would be enjoying this oh she's talking about how she loves the smiths oh he's singing a pixie song at karaoke ooh, you know and all this sort of stuff and like every time it happens in both movies i'm just kind of like i don't want to watch it it basically reminded me of that line that great line from ghost world where um uh where uh steve buscemi says that he doesn't want to meet a he doesn't want to meet a woman with his interests he hates his interests <laughs> uh that kind of is the thing is like i, I don't want to be reminded of the things i like already i want to find new things uh and just kind of like constantly being reminded of old culture just gets so boring because that's just like so what so much of culture is these days that's why um i very rarely we re-watch movies anymore it's why i always want to try and find like the best new tv show instead of just like rewatching old shows although you know there's obviously pleasure to rewatching old shows we've talked about but like there's so much new stuff being made it just always feels like such a waste when people are just constantly referencing the past mm. yeah not in the world of ready player one is set in like 2040 something and mm-hmm. there's literally no mention of anything that happened post 2005 every yeah. single artifact that's culturally exists in this world is old so like they've they've made no new culture. Maybe it is a deep um, comment on the on recycling of of tropes and 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 kind of things like that. That you know I'm, I'm giving the film way too much credit. What am I doing? Yeah. Uh, there, it's interesting you mentioned space as well because you know in the twelve percent of the uh, of the book that I read, there's a bit where like the two characters uh, of H and Wade are like. Great day playing in the Oasis today. What do you want to do later? Space marathon. Marathon, of course. Just like, oh my god! Like, does Ernest has Ernest Klein seen spaced? Because he clearly didn't get it. <laughs> it just it reminds me every time, like if you watch a big Hollywood studio movie and they have a British character in there and they're just like playing into all the stereotypes of being British, mm-hmm. like it's just so galling. It's like, no, we're not like that. Like watching Ready Player One, it's like, no, all nerds aren't like this. Stop! Yeah. Every, I don't want I don't want people to think that this is what I'm like even though some aspects of it probably do chime with with aspects of my personality, maybe more when I was younger than now. But, like, I think there is just that sense, that mortifying sense of watching something that thinks it understands you, but then, but clearly doesn't. Yeah, and also, uh, like, the thing that really made me cringe is when they start dancing to Night Fever in that club. Just kind of like, because it just felt like a real kind of desperate, uh, okay, let's just do a thing. What what in terms of like things we liked, let's try and end on a positive note about Ready Player One. Um, you you said the 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 car chase, the the car race was was pretty good. I thought it was pretty cool. Although I thought it hinged on a very silly conceit, which is that no one would ever think to drive backwards in a racing game. Because, yeah, I mean, someone would do that just by mistake. Yeah, I mean, like maybe it's the games tester in me, but like, <laughs> yeah, maybe, or the fact like, is the games tester in you, and it's the person who's dreadful at computer games who who regularly <laughs> has like an anxiety breakdown during tutorials of games and has to stop. Um, yeah, the, the pro- perhaps you and I would have <laughs> got that first key much quicker. Yeah, um, but like I really liked Mark Rylance's performance as Halliday. I think that he was very very funny um, in. His his like every line delivery had kind of like a weird funny turn to it, uh, and I thought that if there is any kind of like human heart to the movie, and if there is anything 
that maybe feels Spielbergy about it in terms of like the sense that he is invested in this as opposed to someone gave him the script and he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> um, it does feel like, you know, people have talked about the Halliday as being either a Spielberg surrogate as someone who, you know, helped shape a lot of pop culture. And in fact, you know, I think Ready Player One, the book, doesn't exist if Steven Spielberg doesn't exist in many ways. Like, he did so much to shape pop culture in the 80s. Uh, and maybe now at this point, looking back on it, maybe slightly askance, uh, but other people have maybe said that it felt more like a George Lucasy character in the sense of someone who created this thing that's hugely popular who then maybe kind of doesn't understand it and then weirdly ends up signing it away for billions of dollars, uh, which is kind of an interesting... Uh, kind of like parallel but every time Rylance was on screen even when he was his dumb wizard avatar uh, I found him to be very funny particularly when he's trying to hand Wade the final key when they're in that van chase at the end and because Wade is being thrown around he can't quite grab the key and he just the, the wizard avatar just turns to him and says well do you want it or don't you <laughs> it's just like a it was a really funny uh, line delivery mm, I think one of the only things uh, one of the very few things that I liked was um, in terms of, um, like, going back on what I've just said about uh, being drawn into recognising references to things and feeling superior, <laughs> um, that I noticed during the, in the nightclub sequence to Saturday Night Fever when the cops turn up and uh, they pull some weapons out of somewhere, um, Artemis uses the pulse rifle from um, Aliens, um, yes. Which I recognised purely through the sound, and then then because <laughs> that that is a very unique sounding gun, and I've seen aliens so many fucking times um, that uh, kind of I recognised it instantly, and that was more interesting than the scene that was happening mm-hmm. and the stakes because I I couldn't have cared less. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess if they cast a wide enough net, one reference will kind of uh, really land with at least one person watching it mm, and i bet you i didn't get that far in the book but i bet you in the book it's like the cops burst in through the door artemis pulled out a gun it looked just like the pulse rifle from 1986's alien directed by james cameron it sounded <laughs> like this <laughs> that's exactly what it had been written like um i'll bet money on it mm, i'm trying to think of any references that did that for me where i was kind of like oh that's cool that they got that in there and i uh, the only one that kind of gets there is one that was ruined immediately, which is where they go, where Artemis is riding on the bike from Akira. Mm. I can't think, oh, that's cool. And then immediately someone says, that's, that's the, the bike, bike from, from Akira. Akira. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Ruined the one, the one reference that I was kind of excited by. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's a very, yeah, Ready Player One's a very hollow movie, but it has some charms. But <laughs> it's probably... It's down there with Hook as probably one of my least favourite Spielberg movies. In fact, it feels very like Hook in that it's like Spielberg trying his hand at maybe a tone and style of filmmaking that isn't he doesn't really have much of an affinity for, but he's trying it anyway. Mm. But at least this is uh, has like legitimately amazing looking special effects to buy it, I guess. Like, yeah. But it's one of those things where you're watching it and think, wow, you know, this level of um, of digital kind of, like, realisation of a virtual world is really imp- incredible and also 
you don't really have the uncanny valley problem because it's all a computer game anyway and this world is so kind of rich and detailed but then you're the same time you're thinking i don't really care about anything that's happening to anyone in this movie because it's just a long list of things that people like but and i like as well but you know i would rather be told an interesting story yeah yeah it was relatively short i think that was something yeah. to be to be you know commended mm-hmm. weren't too many 80s tracks on the soundtrack but no it does start with jumps doesn't it yeah which was a real kind of like that that got a big kind of like oh yeah from the guy sitting behind me but it was the thing that made me think, oh, this is going to be so fucking corny, isn't it? Yeah, I, I will. <laughs> I will say that, um, like, the film went down really well in mm. in the room that I watched it in. Yeah, um, which made me feel like, you know, am I just the curmudgeon here? Um, yeah. But like, yeah, like even got like a smattering of applause at the end of it, which you know was totally unwarranted. That said, we talk about like films getting uh, like rounds of applause. The only other that I saw a film get a standing ovation once, and that film was American Pie Two. Wow! <laughs> and like I was like, I mean, I wasn't standing up other than to leave immediately, but <laughs> that happened, and I was like, oh, oh, are we doing this? What, what's going on? This can't be right. But yeah, that film got a standing ovation when I saw it in a cinema in Loughborough. Well, what else is there to do in Loughborough? Well, that's good probably point. the first movie they'd ever seen. Mm, could be. So we end this episode, as we end all episodes, with A, a dig at Loughborough, and B... <laughs> you, well, you really put in the boot, you know what I mean? He's down, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Leave it alone, he's had enough. Uh, the best ever joke I ever heard about Loughborough was someone saying that they went to a conference in America and they were introduced as being from Lowbrow University. <laughs> and then they said, um, it's pronounced Loughborough. <laughs> uh, which I think is a better mispronunciation than the standard Lugabaroo, because that just sounds Australian. Yeah, uh, it does a bit, yeah. So we end with Digs at Loughborough and at and with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and which we think that you, our listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for everyone this week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to recommend something on Netflix. Um, it is an HBO miniseries called The Defiant Ones, which is uh, I think four parts and it's about five hours the parts vary from about 45 minutes to an hour and 20 so there's a significant heft to it but it tells the story of two men um, one of them uh, Chris and Andre Young you might know him as Dr. Dre uh, mm. and uh, another guy called uh, Jimmy Iovini who um, both started their, their kind of uh, careers um, fairly inauspiciously ending, uh, entering the music industry by being kind of engineers and producers. Um, Dr. Dre, obviously, very famous for kind of NWA and then his own stuff and then being the plinky-plonky producer that we all um, know and love. Um, and uh, Jimmy Iovini was an engineer for uh, John Lennon, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, and kind of, you know, really great people. And, and is. And the story, the, the documentary tells the story of how these two guys kind of ploughed their own furrows, then ended up um, forming Beats by Dre together. So um, kind of the idea that two people from completely disparate um, kind of uh, like kind of walks of life can be um, kind of thrust together um, by this kind of pursuit of sonic perfection. And mm. um, it's... It's a really kind of interesting film because it um, 
um, kind of makes you appreciate the art of engineering and producing and and um, realizing just how um, kind of insanely talented Dr. Dre is and all mm. the you like, it's one of those things where you forget the amount of songs he's put out and like it talks about how um, kind of like uh, musically he was doing a stuff that just never been done before or been done you know doing it differently to everyone else but anyway it's just a very absorbing film it makes a very um interesting um companion piece to la 92 the documentary i recommended about four or five weeks ago mm. um on the 200th episode uh, which tells the story of the la riots because there is you know some kind of overlapping collection in there um and also kind of cuts back to uh kind of archive footage of dre and interviews with people about him and then to the present day where he's actually shooting uh, straight out of compton um, which is really easy having a guy kind of looking back on his career, talking about it in a documentary, but then also producing a movie that's biographical that he's kind of involved with on set, doing very kind of personal, um, recreating very personal instances from his life. It's just a very, very kind of um, uh, fascinating uh, look at genius, I guess, and a look at ambition um, and a look at success and um kind of everything that brings you um and yeah it's on netflix um and i would heartily recommend it cool i am going to recommend a movie which is also on netflix at least over here in the u.s maybe it's also available elsewhere it's a documentary called best worst thing that ever could have happened which is directed by uh, lonnie price lonnie price is a at this point, a, you know, a fairly acclaimed uh, theatre director, directs lots of Broadway plays. In the 80s, he also appeared in some movies. He plays the character of Neil, the least likeable character in Dirty Dancing. And he's also in, I think, The Muppets Take Manhattan. He's a, you know, he's kind of an actor who's done a bunch of things. But he started, one of the first things he was ever involved with was a Stephen Sondheim musical called Merrily We Roll Along, which was produced on Broadway in 1981, you know, was the follow-up or one of the more immediate follow-ups to Sweeney Todd, which was sometimes one of sometimes biggest kind of cultural phenomena that he had been involved with and was this show that was really kind of heavily billed. Everyone was very excited about it. And it closed after two weeks and was kind of a notorious failure in his career. And the documentary follows the lives of the cast because the cast, because the, 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 the conceit of merrily we roll along was that uh, it's a story that takes place backwards it starts with this this main character in his 40s giving a commencement of, uh, address at his old school and then each scene kind of travels backwards in time tracing uh, until he's a he graduates from high school and it's kind of tracing how he became this kind of like cynical adult and how he lost his uh, idealism over the course of his life and the the conceit of the play was that all the characters were played by young kids in their teens and 20s i think they say in the documentary that the youngest was 16 and the eldest was 25 in the cast so what you had was all of these incredibly young actors and actresses who were all huge musical theater fans all hugely um influenced and uh obsessed with stephen sondheim who got everything they could have wanted with their first job in many cases their first job on broadway and then, you know, immediately the show closes. And so the first half of the documentary is about, you know, their excitement about being involved in this show. And the second half is about tracing their lives subsequently. 
And some of the uh, people involved became, you know, working Broadway actors. Some became actors on television and movies. One of them went on to play George Costanza, one of the greatest <laughs> characters in the history of American television. Um, and they're all interviewed and they're all talking about what the show meant to them. And it's a, it's a really interesting documentary because of the show that it's about has this thing where, you know, the, the whole conceit of it is about tracing a man's life backwards it's all very melancholy because all the characters are them all the participants are themselves re uh, reflecting on their own lives and where they have been taken over the course of their years they've all gone in very different directions uh, over the time and it, it ends up being a really fun show because obviously like anyone who's ever watched any show about broadway theater will know that it's grueling but you know kind of a fantastical world really to to see uh, people kind of take part in it and everyone's so enthusiastic about this show even though it ended up not happening really for them but also kind of really melancholy because all these people you know their lives didn't turn out exactly how they planned and uh, I, I found it to be uh, really really impactful and and moving uh, and uh, also made me check out the show you know the original cast recording is on iTunes and it's a very fun show uh, given new cultural relevancy by the fact that it's the show that uh, they are rehearsing for in Ladybird. So if anyone's seen Ladybird and wondered what the hell that show that everyone doesn't understand is, <laughs> it's uh, Merrily We Roll Along, a show that people didn't understand. So that is my recommendation for this week. Awesome. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, write us a review and rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It helps us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>